But anyway, um, look, uh, before we get into this, I'm going I'm to pray for us, uh, and, then, and then we're just going to dive into God's Word here. Um, Jesus, God, I'm just a, a person, I'm just a man, I'm just a servant, uh, along with all of your people. Uh, so we ask, Lord, that today you would speak. Today you'd be present. Today, Spirit, you'd be at work in this, and you'd be leading our hearts into a deeper knowing of our Saviour, uh, and therefore a, a deeper reflection of our Saviour, and therefore a deeper unity as your people, the church in this world, uh, a people of the gospel who are unified around the word of the cross and who take that word out to those around us. We pray these things in the, in the glorious name of our Saviour who went to the cross for us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we're, we're continuing along in our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and I've just realized that I do actually rather need the clicky doodle, which is the thing that I use to move to the next slide. So Darren, would I be able to... Thank you. Um, no, we're continuing on in 1 Corinthians today. We're, we're in the third part of the series. If you're just joining us, it's not too late to catch up. We're not up to part 57 or something like that. Thank you, Darren. There will not be 57 parts, of course. Uh, but 1 Corinthians is a book uh, that calls those who have trusted in Jesus... Uh, to be who they are now in Christ. And as such, it's driven by this one conviction, a conviction that the truth about Jesus applies in every situation of our lives and so leads us to live out our new identity in Him. Uh, the, the structure, just to rehash, the structure that we're going to run into throughout this book is that, that 1 Corinthians is basically broken down into 10 big issues that were facing this church. Really, really challenging things a lot of the time, uh, like, like we're going to look at now. The first one is, is about church divisions and church unity. Uh, and, and each of these 10 divisions within the book, 10 sections of the book, you can break down into, into this structure of they give you a situation, there is a gospel principle that Paul speaks into that situation, and then he applies that principle to the situation. He brings us, well, what does that mean for us? Uh, and and that's really important for us to see, not just because of, because of this, it, uh, partly because it shows us that sometimes the situations are different to our situation, and sometimes they're the same, but also because if we can capture that shape, that situation, gospel principle, gospel application shape, and, and, and bring it into our lives, then we learn how to reason biblically. We learn how to think how to act, how to be as the people of God in a way that is informed by the gospel of Jesus. And that, that speaks to us in a, in a lifelong and powerful way. Like I said, this week we, we're going to pick right back up where we left off last week because, because we are halfway through the first one of these, these ten situations. Uh, so if you didn't catch the first one, uh, it's, not, not too it's too late to do it before today's sermon. I'm not going to wait, but... But uh, you, can, you can listen to that on the website. Uh, but the first situation Paul is addressing spans four chapters, the first four chapters of the book. It's the longest situation, longest piece of text in the whole thing. Uh, and, and the situation is this. The church in Corinth is struggling with divisions. Uh, specifically, they're di dividing over leaders uh, and over, over teachers, like, like Rick mentioned for us helpfully before. And, and as we saw last week, this is happening in a way that is dragging in the past of these believers into the church, dragging in their old ways. 
their history, in their culture before they came to Christ. So like the Greek philosophical culture of their day, uh, they are latching on to specific teachers, they're picking out their guru, and so they are opposing those who follow another teacher and another teacher's teaching. And so one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, and another says, I follow Peter, and each of them goes, and I don't, I don't like you guys because you follow someone else. And that's how, that's how Greek uh, culture worked at the time. You attach yourself to a teacher, and you get power, you get standing, you get pride through that attachment to a teacher. And they'd brought that in to the church. And Paul's been kind of systematically dismantling uh, the situation in light of gospel truth, following, following the pattern of the book that we mentioned before. And, and last week, the gospel principle which Paul applied to this situation was that the word of the cross is the power of God which gives us unity. The message of the cross is in fact the power and the wisdom of God, he said last week. It, it saves us and carries us on as we grow in the faith. We never leave it behind. We don't move on to a deeper teaching than the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the message of the cross of Christ is in fact uh, insight into the depths of the heart and the mind of God, Paul told us last week. Brought to us by his very spirit. And who knows the spirit of a uh, who knows the heart of a person but the spirit that is within them? But do you remember do you remember what that means? What that meant for the divisions in the church, for the pride in the church, for the power plays that were happening within the church. Because they're completely out of place. They don't fit in the church. Because if the, the message of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God, then the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, has chosen for his power and his wisdom to be expressed in utter weakness, in utter lowliness. And, and that defeats, that calls us out of all of our pride, doesn't it? Because if, if God, our God Almighty, decided to express his power through lowliness, then it would be contrary for his people to come in and fight over scraps of power, right? To, to fight over pride, to fight over haughtiness, to argue over petty things. And, and this week, we're going to continue to apply and to build out that principle. Uh, we're going to see that built out. And, and, and Paul's going to show us that we have one God who has given us one gospel, so we must be one. One God, one gospel, and therefore one people. And because our, because our oneness, our unity as a church, is found in the oneness of our God and of his good news, his gospel, Paul reveals that the reality of what's happening in Corinth, and I would argue the reality of what happens in any church whenever divisions happen, uh, is that those divisions are fundamentally rooted in a separation from the one gospel of Jesus. So as he opens, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians uh, that he wasn't able to give them the full depths of gospel wisdom. Excuse me whilst I flip to it. Oop, that's Revelation. He says, I wasn't able to give you the full depths of gospel wisdom when I came to you. He, he 
has had to continue addressing them as, as spiritual infants, he calls them. Not the friendliest language ever. Uh, he says, uh, you weren't and you still aren't ready to eat meat, so I have to keep feeding you the milk, is the, the metaphor he uses. Uh, and a mistake we might make when we read that is that we read it and we go, uh, yeah, so the gospel is the milk, right? Like, you know, that stands to reason. Like, the thing that you, that you take in when you're first saved is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we move on from the gospel, we get to the meat. You know, there's a meatier, a deeper teaching. But if you read it in context, that's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, remember, last week, uh, he told us what the secret and the hidden wisdom of God is, right? What's, what's the secret and the hidden wisdom of God? It's what has been given to us plainly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified is the power and the wisdom of God, he said. So the difference between milk and meat isn't a different message, you see. In context, it means, it means two things, actually. One, milk represents the message of the gospel purely applied so as to move from unsaved to saved, to move from death to life, to make that initial move. Without looking at growth, without looking at the multitude of ways that the gospel speaks into each situation of our lives, it is simply the gospel as you receive it in the first step. But then second, I think probably Paul's main reason he uses this metaphor, when you think about it, what's the difference between the milk that a baby drinks and the meat that an adult eats if you're a vegetarian? Uh, Paul doesn't apologise, so I probably won't either, sorry. Uh, and yet I did. Primarily, though, the difference here is that a baby has to be fed all of the time, right? Like, they, they don't feed themselves. I don't, like, as illustrated, this very moment, Ted uh, never deals with his own problems. He always has to have them dealt with for him. Um, sorry, Ted. It's going in the archive. Oh, well. Um, but a mature person, an adult, can feed themselves, can't they? And, and, and they can feed others as well. They can feed the milk to others, whereas, whereas a person who drinks the milk, a baby who drinks the milk, can't feed anyone else. Ted, Ted's not going and feeding anyone else. He, he can't even get to them. Actually, he can these days. But. So, so I would argue that the issue here is not that the Corinthians haven't um, moved on from the gospel to this deeper thing, but that they have moved on from the gospel. They have sought deeper things than the depths of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have sought power, they've sought pride, they've sought joy by going beyond the gospel message. And so they need to come back, come back to the basics, to be treated like children as that, so that they can grow enough to start feeding themselves and to start feeding others the truths about Jesus, to start being a mature disciple who makes disciples, you see. So Paul's calling these believers who've been sidetracked onto seeking pride and worldly wisdom, and he's calling them back to the gospel, which brings them in and grows them up, and brings us in and grows us up as a people. He's saying, stop dividing over teachers and secondary points. Come back to the truth 
and be united. And that fits with what comes next. Um, because now Paul, he turns this, to this issue of specifically of dividing over teachers, right? This, this is a fairly familiar one in the modern church. Uh, and, and he points out the obvious, which is that the teachers these guys are dividing over, the teachers themselves, they're not divided. They're one. You're, you're playing them off against each other, but that's not how they see it at all. In fact, because they are servants of the one God, and because their message is one, they are one, he says, these teachers, as servants. So it makes no sense to divide over them, Corinthians. It's, it's God who gives the growth. And then Paul, Paul transitions to another uh, image which represents the reality of the church unified. And as he makes that transition, he moves to a warning towards teachers themselves. Uh, he, he knows that there are teachers still in Corinth that are teaching and that, and that uh, this divisiveness is probably starting somewhere, right? Uh, it's starting with teachers. And so he says, the church is God's building, God's temple. And this is where it might be helpful to remember that building a building in the days of Paul was not the same as building a building in the days of us. Um, it, large buildings like, like temples, major buildings took years. They took decades. Often, sometimes they took centuries to construct uh, in the days before cranes and bulldozers. You know, I, re I remember when we lived in, in Brisbane, uh, there, was a, there was a skyscraper went up. You know, this was not a small building. and They were building it right on the edge of the Brisbane River just because they wanted to. And, and like this thing, I think it was, Jim, I don't think, I, I looked it up. It was about 300 metres tall. And, and, and it took them a couple of years to kind of go from dirt to skyscraper, which, which is phenomenal when you think about it. It just, it just felt like it flew up. Um, you might remember, if, if, you, if you're with us regularly, that, that, that we recently did Haggai as, as a church. We, we looked through that book, and, and it took them you know, just over five years to rebuild the temple, which at the time was considered to be a miraculously fast rebuild of the temple. And it was a miraculously fast rebuild of the temple with, with nothing but hands and hand tools to do so. So this image is of the lifelong work, you see. And Paul has in view here the teachers in relation to the church rather than, rather than the individual. Uh, and that's, that's important because, again, if you remove this passage from its context, uh, you might think this is about individuals and maybe it's describing a Christian who is saved but doesn't live out the Christian life. That's actually been a really popular way to take this, this passage, is that, is that the guy who's saved as through fire and his work's burned up, but he, he survives, uh, that that's, that's individual Christians saying, you know, he, he hasn't lived out the works of the faith, but sure, he can still be a Christian without being at all changed by Jesus. But Paul says, um, Paul says something different. He's talking about teachers here and talking about the work that they build in the lives of the people of God. Um, and he says that they're, they're still saved, if they are saved. Um, they still enter heaven in the end. Um, but, but, but their works, well, they may be burned up because they haven't led people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The foundation laid for the church is Christ, he says. 
and teachers can build on the foundation of Christ. They can build in a way that fits the foundation or they can build in a way that contradicts the foundation. Um, that is, they can, they can teach in line with the good news of Jesus. They can keep leading people back to Christ. Back to Christ. Keep returning to the gospel. Keep applying it more and more deeply into the lives of the people. Or they can go off seeking another wisdom. Giving you their thoughts for this week. And, and, and you see why he brings it up, right? Because this is, this is what's happening. Their divisions are fundamentally rooted in a separation from the teaching of the one gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, there's a, there's a, a teacher named Don Carson uh, who's some good words worth listening to here. Um, you see what he says about it. He says, this ought to be extremely sobering to all who are engaged in vocational ministry. Let me pause you on John, John Carson just there and say, there's also a warning here for everyone who is to be a maker of disciples. And that's, if, if you were to categorize which Christians, which, which followers of Jesus that is, that is the followers of Jesus, right? Step back in. This, this ought to be extremely sobering to all who are engaged in vocational ministry or the making of disciples. It is possible to build the church with such shoddy materials that at the last day, you have nothing to show for your labor. People may come, feel helped, join in corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoy fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. If the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. Not for a moment am I suggesting that, say, managerial skills are unnecessary or that basic people skills are merely optional, but the fundamental non-negotiable that without which the church is no longer the church, is the gospel. God's folly, Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is a severe warning here. More severe than the weather warning over the last couple of days. For anyone who would seek to teach others, and, and like I said, in some regard for anyone who would seek to make disciples, which we're all called into by, by that Matthew 28 Great Commission. We all take part in teaching ministry of some sort. But it is especially for those who teach the church as well. When you teach God's people, you are taking part in the building work of God's temple today. And what you build with is vitally important. Here's what that means. Um, the teaching you bring must, must, must be centred on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news about Jesus is the wisdom of God, like we saw last week. So if you're not teaching and, and ever returning to the good news about Jesus, uh, looking to the gospel to inform every part of your teaching, every area of application, uh, and for all of us, every chance to speak into the life of another believer, to a brother or sister, taking the gospel into their lives, 
then you're building on the foundation of Christ with something that doesn't fit on the foundation of Christ, you see. You're choosing to replace the riches of God's wisdom with the straw and the sticks of man's wisdom. Now, I, I want to make a, a broad comment on church teaching today. I know, that's dangerous. going to do it anyway. Can't stop me. If you only define a healthy teaching ministry as one which sometimes affirms the truth of the gospel, you will sometimes but not often be disappointed. I'll say that again. If you only define a healthy teaching ministry, so how do, you, how do you define that term, a healthy teaching ministry? If you only define it as one which sometimes affirms the truth of the gospel, you will sometimes but not often be disappointed. Let me put that on the ground. If, 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 if you get a teaching ministry and they'll sometimes mention the cross of Christ, he makes it, uh, you know, he, he puts it into the service every now and then, once a month, or once every two months, or usually just in the communion, you know, like, like Jesus, Jesus gets the flag flown every now and then, and you go, well, they're a gospel-believing church, right? So great, awesome. Then, then you won't find many churches that will disappoint you. You'll certainly find some, uh, but most churches, even, even a lot of really whacked churches, when push comes to shove, will affirm that Jesus is the saviour of the world uh, and that he died and rose again. Not all, most. Uh, we'll address those other ones in just a moment, by the way. But let's call for a bit of discernment here. There's more to gospel unity than mentioning Jesus every now and then. Here's how unhealthy teaching, um, you know, the sticks and straw teaching of building on the gospel foundation with, with things that don't fit it, here's how that tends to happen most often in my observation today in the church. People will make the central thing secondary and the secondary thing central. Secondary thing central, central thing secondary. What I mean is that you will often find that although the gospel is, has a place in a church, it doesn't have the central place in a church. This is a really easy thing to happen. So you look at the teaching and it more often focuses on a, on a niche secondary area, often which is an implication of the gospel, you know, something that should come up that should sit in that secondary position of coming up because it flows out of the truth of the gospel, but, but will assume or ignore the actual gospel of Jesus more regularly. So, for instance, we'll mention the cross of Christ sometimes, we'll talk about Jesus, but the bread and butter of our teaching is the, the order of events of the end time, or our particular take on creation. Or, or you know, we, we exclusively focus on on, on social issues um, and seldom mention the gospel, although, of course, we believe the gospel. Uh, this is so often the case where the central becomes secondary and the secondary becomes central, you see. Even churches that go right off the rails, actually, that, that end up denying the central things, I believe, often start here. And I think the evidence backs that up when you look at churches. Focusing disproportionately on a secondary issue, but generally affirming the gospel until push comes to shove and, and they have to choose and it turns out that the secondary issue has become more important than the good news of Jesus. 
and so it gets left behind. Guys, although this is speaking primarily to leaders, there's a lesson here for every believer who is called to lead others as disciples. That's all of us. The gospel has to be front and centre always. Always. It has to be the central content of our teaching, of your leading, uh, of, of your discipling ministry. Now, now, you might go, gosh, John, you just said the same thing about a billion times over. And, and yeah, of course. Let me ask a question. If you're honest and open, I think, I think there are people here who will have a, 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 a life-changing, eye-opening moment in this question. Here's the question. If you could pick one believer that you know, right, and convince them of one thing, guaranteed, you know, like it's that, it's that person that you wish would agree with you on this thing, and you get to pick that person and say, they will agree with you. And like, God's just going to do his divine intervention thing. And then, boom, you win the argument. And they go, <laughs> my eyes are open now. Um, what would that one thing be? You get to convince one person of one thing. What would it be? One Christian of one thing. I think a lot of us would pick a secondary issue when we ask that question. Maybe, maybe you're, you're the clever type who's, who's heard the previous tw 20 minutes of sermon and gone, I <laughs> know, I know the answer to this. Be honest, come on. It's okay, I, I get it. We want people to agree with our position on baptism. We, we desperately want people to agree with, you know, with, with, with how the beginning went or how the end's going to go, specifically in detail, and, and we have to identify some, some really key people there. A, a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians approach life like their primary, primary responsibility as a maker of disciples is to convince other people either of their own view on creation or their own view on end times events or on a whole bunch of other secondary issues. Now, now, are those bad things to discuss? No. I am actually planning to catch up with someone and talk about one of them this week. No. But if on the ground your disciple-making work is convincing people about whether the millennium is literal and about who the beast is, then, then I tell you because I love you, you've been sidetracked from the gospel. We should discuss those things. They're in the Bible. The Bible talks to these issues. But because they're in the Bible, even they should only be discussed as implications of the gospel, the message of, at the centre of all of the truth of Scripture, which is the power and the wisdom of God. You know, it's this in, like, we see this in, in 1 Corinthians. Paul keeps going to these, these areas that you're like, well, that's not the gospel. And then he's like, ba-boom, it's about the gospel. Like, you know, he's going to go over to, to Egypt a couple thousand years before Jesus uh, in a few chapters' time. And he's going to talk about the Passover and he's going to be like, hey, the Passover's about Jesus. You know? He's going to point us towards creation, mention creation's about Jesus. This is, this is what he does. Gone off, the, gone off the reservation there for a second. Um, we should discuss those things. Uh, but a lot of people will spend forever trying to convince people about how 
Old Testament prophecy can tell us the order of the things to come, but completely ignoring the words of Jesus that he is the fulfillment of the promise. Ceases to be about him. Goes for creation too. Goes for a whole host of other things. I'm not saying this to attack anyone. I'm saying this because we have a great truth. And it is to our own loss that we take our focus off of the thing at the centre, the one at the centre. Now, Paul says now that the teacher who builds wrongly by removing the focus from the gospel, if he's a believer, he will still be saved himself. And that's, that's sobering because it means that there are Christian teachers who do remove the focus from the gospel, uh, but experience tells us that he's right, right? He is, uh, and, 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 and how easy it is to do, honestly. But then Paul gives another warning, and this one is to the teacher who doesn't just fail to focus on Christ, but who goes against the foundation of Christ. That is, one who denies the truth of the gospel. Paul says, anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Those are, those are some pretty heavy words. Is anyone who tries to bring down the church with their teaching, not just failing to focus on Christ, but actually fighting against the truth of the gospel, which was a thing that was quite prevalent in Paul's day and continues to be for the last 2,000 and a bit years, should be aware that they have revealed themselves to be unsaved, a false teacher and awaiting judgment. And, 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 and like I said, I think there's a reason that Paul puts those two things in sequence. The, the teacher who is not focusing on the gospel and the teacher who is outright denying the gospel, removing from the gospel from focus and denying the gospel often flow from one another. There's so much more at stake when we remove focus from the gospel than we often realise. So often what starts as an overemphasis on a secondary issue ends in our outright denial of Jesus. I, I, I'm denied about how coy to be about saying this, but, you know, we, we can think of large denominations where uh, eventually they ended up welcoming in pastors who deny the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, affirming things that, that God says are sin as not sin, if you know who I'm talking about, you know who I'm talking about. Let me take you down a quick rehash, though, because what we, what we tend to do is we look at the, the explosion moment where it all fell apart and we go, wow, you know, that came out of nowhere. Isn't that crazy? And, and that's not what happened. We go, take down the road. The dom denomination founded on the idea that Christians are to be unified. Now, that's right, do you see? Christians are to be unified. We have literally spent the last two weeks talking about it. Uh, unit, but unity is secondary to the gospel. It's meant to flow out of the gospel. This is what we've said, isn't it? But at least at the start, the denomination affirms the truth of the gospel, of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and, and, and has a closed hand on unity. And over time, that focus on unity above the gospel erodes the view of the gospel. We must be unified and we have the gospel. 
We must be unified. Some of us don't want to hold to all of the truths of the gospel, so we're going to maintain our unity. We're going to cut off a few of those truths of the gospel so that we can do that. We must be unified. The gospel is exclusive of those who reject it, so we reject the truth of the gospel. And Paul finishes this part of the book with these two applications of this truth. First, at the end of chapter 3, he, here, he, he calls us to return to the wisdom of God in the gospel. Forsake the wisdom of the world and so find unity in him. The wisdom of this world is folly with God, he says. And he's intentionally echoing something he said earlier on. Do you hear that? His, he, earlier he said that the word of the cross is folly to the world. And now he says the wisdom of God is, is uh, sorry, the wisdom of the world is, is folly with God. Whose definition of wise and stupid are you going to follow? Paul says, become an idiot in the world's eyes by walking in the truth of the wisdom of God. Walking in the good news of the cross and so be unified in the good news. His second application, it takes us, uh, uh, takes up the entirety of chapter 4 and we're going we're gonna to shoot through it. But it, it comes down to this. He says, be ready to lose out. Be ready to lose out by the world's standards in order to experience the power of, and wisdom of God. You know, um, Paul spends the first half of chapter 4 contrasting the believers in Corinth and the, and the apostles. Um, he says, he says that they're dead opposites. The Corinthians, they're seen as wise, strong, honoured. You know, at least that's what they're going for. We're going to find out that actually a lot of them are poor, a lot of them are weak, but they're trying for wise, strong and honoured in the world, right? But the apostles, the apostles are seen as fools. The apostles are weak. The apostles are held in disrepute. They're hungry, they're thirst, thirsty, they're homeless, they're poorly dressed, having to work with their hands to survive. They're reviled, and yet they bless in return. They're persecuted, and yet they endure. They're slandered, but they call, on, uh, they call those who slandered them to Christ. The apostles are seen as the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, Paul says. That's, again, strong language, and yet this was the reality, right? This is a guy who's been imprisoned a number of times by this point for the gospel. And Paul says, Paul says, like, he, he says, this is what you're like, this is what we're like, be imitators of me. See, Paul's life, the life of the apostles, is mirroring, mirroring the life of Christ Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He walked the path of weakness, which is ultimately the path of victory because it is the path that leads to life in the end the path that leads into the eternal kingdom of God the path that leads to joy and to peace that the world offers but cannot deliver and so Paul says be ready to walk the hard road by imitating me this 
application is so important because it hammers it home again. Believing the gospel is about more than affirming that something is true in your head. It leads to living a different life. It can lead to a life with a lot of struggles. It can lead to a life with a lot of loss. But it's a life that is ultimately, infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. Now, isn't it, I don't know, I, I feel like very often as Christians, um, there's something we get backwards that, that reflects this. Um, we go, we, we're very thank, rightfully, we're thankful to God for the nation that we live in and for the freedoms that we have in the country we live in. Um, and, and secondarily, we want to be witnesses now, we might not think of them in those sorts of terms, but I think something that happens down here more than up here is that push comes to shove, we probably want to hold on to the freedoms, even if it means we have to be a bit quieter in the witness. And Paul says, no, 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 be ready to lose. Be ready to lose everything. Be ready to lose your job. Be ready to lose financial gain. Be ready to lose public opinion. Be ready to be considered the refuse of the world for the sake of Christ, for the sake of holding to the good news of Jesus. I know that's a hard call. I know that's a hard thing to call us towards. And we have to keep our eyes on the good that is coming for us in order to be able to give up the goods of this world. Final challenge here. Not just what do you talk about, but what are you ready to live for? Not just what do you talk about, what are you ready to live for? Will you be ready to lose for the sake of living in the wisdom of God? We don't, we don't really experience persecution in Australia. Um, not, not yet, anyway. Like, you might think that we do, and, and like, like sporadically, occasionally someone gets really, um, you know, taken out by, by a person for, for the gospel. But as far as systemic persecution against Christians goes, the day may come. I don't think we're there yet. Like, you compare us to our brothers and sisters in, in Iran or in China, and, and you just go, well, <laughs> um, maybe we just need to harden up a little bit. But you'll certainly be seen as a fool if you trust in Jesus and let people know about it? Are we ready for that? Are we ready for worse things that could come? Imagine the unity of a church that is ready to stand on the truth of Jesus together to their loss. And here's my final invitation. If you've been living in the wisdom of the world, Maybe your life has been very comfortable. Maybe, maybe you are held in honour. Maybe right now you're listening in this moment and, and, and all, of, all of your wisdom, all of your honour, all of your wealth, um, you're realising it's worth nothing eternally and you want the wisdom and the power of God in your life. Today's the day to say, no to a life of striving and come and experience the real peace that is in Jesus.
Today is the day to move from one world to another. Today is the day to become who you will be in Jesus. A new person, a child of God, a forgiven sinner, a saint, holy and approved and loved in the eyes of God. If that's you or if that's not you, let's, let's pray together. Jesus, you're so generous to us. That we think of the words of your of, of the Bible in, in First Peter, that when you were reviled, you didn't revile in return. And when you suffered, you didn't threaten, but continued entrusting yourself to God. We pray, Lord that we would be imitators of you, that in, in love for you, in knowing your great love for us, in knowing the power and the wisdom of the cross, we would be ready to lose all, to cling to the power and the wisdom of your truth, of you. I pray for anyone who has not known you, Lord, that this would be the day, that they would be able to turn and say, Lord, I haven't trusted in you sin i've run from you i've been a rebel against you but i want to know you lord forgive me i trust in the power of god in the cross of jesus we thank you lord that you welcome in sinners like us we pray lord that you would build us into a people who reflect your truth in this world as a unified body of christ pray in jesus name